I want to invite uh, Jen Manley to come. She's going to be reading from 1 Samuel 17. 1 uh, Samuel 17. Jen, come read for us. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and stuck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Thank you so much, Jen, for reading. This story has to be, I would guess, one of the most, if not the most well-known story and probably all of Scripture. You might have heard it at an early age. If you have any background in church, I'm positive You've heard it numerous times. But I also think even if you don't have a background in church, you probably have heard this story referenced. You might have heard it referenced in business or in law, kind of a, a small startup kind of takes down the big corporate giant. Or maybe you heard it in a, a movie reference, a, a David and Goliath moment or Certainly, I've heard it numerous times in sports. And, and this story is, is so familiar. Anytime it seems like an underdog pulls off an upset, a David and Goliath reference is often not that far away. Yet for all of our familiarity, we may need a refresher. We're going through this series in the life of David, and so this is our, our story today. And our familiarity could be an obstacle. We we might find ourselves not paying as much attention to the story as we should be. We might kind of zone out. It's like we hear, uh, in the unlikely event of a water landing, this plane is equipped with, you know, I'm, I'm not paying attention to that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not finding the exit. I, I generally kind of, yeah, I got that drill. And we could do that to the story. Yeah, I, I, I understand all of this, but but our familiarity doesn't have to be an obstacle. It actually could help us. We, we could use our familiarity because we, we know this story, and that could be a great place for us to jump on board. And we might recognize as we jump on board, as we listen to the story, that we've actually missed a few things. Maybe there are things that we, we did not hear the first time, or maybe the tenth time we heard it. I know when I go back to a place where I lived, whether that be in Oklahoma or, or Georgia or Tennessee, I, when you drive up, there's a, you, you have memories of a place, but there's often things that your memory doesn't quite fill in or you remembered it in a different way. And it's actually the same place, but your, your memory needs a little bit of correcting and, and at least expansion. And I find that when we go to the actual story of David, that, that might happen today. There might be parts of it that you, 
have not really noticed. And, and certainly even as you get older, you see things in a different way than you saw them when you were five years old and heard this story, or 10 or 15 or even 25. You see things in a different way. You understand how the world works in different ways. So I think for this, this story to have its strongest effect, I, I'm going to encourage you to do three things before we, we dig into the story. And I think it would be helpful to do these three things all over Scripture and certainly in any portion that's story or narrative. But I, I think especially today, it will serve us well if we do three things. So, so let me just talk through those and then we'll, we'll dig into the story. I think the first thing we must do is we must learn to slow down. If we're going to appreciate any story, but stories like this that are familiar, we have to learn to slow down. You begin to ask the question, like, why is this included? And I, I, you, you, you recognize that you're not just trying to boil this down to an inspirational tale or a few guiding principles. So you can't just assume you know it. I mean, we all have like the framework of this story, right? The, the big bad giant talks trash and in comes the puny little guy and he has a sling, a few rocks and end of story, go face your giants, knock them down, et cetera, et cetera. We all go home. And if we do that, we'll miss some of the things if we just kind of rush through the story too quickly. And not only should we learn to slow down, we should pay attention to details. We should pay attention to details. And by those details, I I don't mean to say that the Bible is just one big allegory and we're not looking to compare every little detail with something spiritual in every single way. We're not looking that. But but when you slow down enough to see details, what you're going to find is there are details that make this story more human than maybe we realized. It seems much less of an inspirational tale, and it seems like, no, I, I can understand that. I can appreciate this world. Even this world in like 1000 BC may seem like a, a, a world away, but it's not a make-believe one. It's not a fantasy world. These characters are all too human, and we know them. We know them well. We can relate to them. We can begin to see patterns that we might miss, and if we're just kind of hammer down, I'm going to skim through this, and maybe the next chapter there'll be something new for me to read. So much of the Bible is told in story. And something else really important in stories, and this is the third thing I would encourage us before we even dig into the stories, we have to listen closely to the dialogue. That's so important in stories, especially in the Old Testament. You have to ask the question again and again, like, who says what? And what are the main themes and what people are actually talking about? So what are the characters saying? And what's repeated? What's repeated again and again? Why are they saying, who doesn't speak? And what information does this communicate? We have to listen closely to the dialogue. I'd love for us to walk through this story. There are a lot of verses. I don't know if you just kind of glanced at 1 Samuel 17. There are like 58 verses in this chapter. And we're going to read them. We're going to go through today. And we should be out by dinner time, I would think. So I hope you settled in. The nursery workers are prepared. So, no, in, in, in all seriousness, let's slow down and read it. Verse 1, if you have your Bibles, verse 1, 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. 
And they were encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And if we slow down long enough and we catch some of the details, we recognize this doesn't start with once upon a time there was this mean giant. It doesn't start that way. It doesn't start like a a long time ago in a galaxy far, far. It doesn't start that way. It doesn't. It doesn't start as Paul Bunyan and Babe in the Blue Ox. It doesn't start as Rapunzel. It, It doesn't start in any other world for that matter. It starts in real time and space. It's interesting. As a matter of fact, my my friend Jim Showers, one of, one of our members here, takes leads tours to Israel on a fairly regular basis. And he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, one of the places they stop is the Valley of Elah. They go to this very place. You can go there and see the geography as, as, it, as it's told just in scripture here. You can go to the place that happens. And it says in verse 4, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. Some say that's nine foot six, and some say six foot nine. Whatever it is, it's like massively above anybody else is what it's communicating. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs, had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Again, as you slow down enough to realize what's going on, you recognize the author thought it's very important that you know there was real geography for this story. And the author thought it was very, very important that you have a good glimpse into this armor that Goliath has. I don't know of any other armors quite described this way, the physical armor. This is like the, the most extensive description, and it is presenting a picture like this man who is a giant also has this armor, and if that were not enough, he has an armor bearer that's helping him. So it looks like a pretty dire situation from the vantage point of Israel. The author is actually setting up a very strong con- contrast in what Israel has to offer. But I said pay attention to the dialogue, and so far in this chapter, no one's spoken, but that changes in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? So let's do it this way. Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy. And we'll notice again and again that word coming up, defy. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. You give me a man that we may fight together. The idea of defiance is strong. And and maybe again, in a Western culture, we have to realize our differences from a culture that is very steeped in shame and honor. And so it's not only a military thing going on here. But one culture is claiming cultural superiority over another by saying, I defy you. I defy your armies. I defy everything that is in you. And and he challenges them to a representative fight. And there's plenty of historical context for this, even if most often the army still fought anyway. 
there's much, much historical background of these kinds of one-on-one representative for a whole group of people. But now look at the reaction of Saul in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, what does it say? What is their emotional state, their mental state? They were dismayed and were greatly afraid. What strikes us here, especially with Saul, is the first description we have of Saul is that he is head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. So it's almost as if we have a parallel. We have Goliath who is head and shoulders above everybody. But, but wait a minute, there's Saul, and Saul would be head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. So the idea is maybe the two of them will, will get after it. Maybe the two of them will fight. But then we find actually no Saul is, and all Israel, is greatly afraid. Saul at one point had fought battles for Israel. That's what a good portion of the first Samuel is about least the first part of it, but now, now he's afraid. Now he's in turmoil since God's spirit has left him, we found in 1 Samuel 16 last week. And God is being defied, and Israel is in full meltdown mode. No one knows what to do. But then verse 12, it's like a hinge. There's so many of these hinges in scripture. Some of these go like, but God, and this one is a hinge as well. So we have Goliath, and when the, then we have Saul and all of Israel, but now David. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. Battle used loosely there. And then the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward. We know that number 40, right? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted of the devil. We we know the number 40. And here we find 40 days this Philistine comes forward and takes his stand morning and evening. And imagine on day 33, morning and day 34, evening, and one after another, and he's defying. And imagine all the the shame and the cowardice that is piling up here. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers and Ephah this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are are well in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David's assignment is to take a care package, right? And then to give some sort of report of, here's how it's going with the, the brothers. Verse 20, And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went. And Jesse, as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment, just as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks. He went and greeted his brothers. Verse 23, as he, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. Do you notice again the details, the layering on of, of this man who is creating so much turmoil? He came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and he spoke the same words as before. And David 
heard him. And David heard him. Well, how are the men of Israel doing? All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him. They were much afraid. What a well-told story. It's just putting the characters in place so well. It starts off with this description of Goliath, and we got a good idea of what he's like. And then it, it takes us over to David and kind of builds the tension, and we're, we're waiting, are these two going to meet, and what will the meeting be like? But at the same time, kind of in the backdrop, all this tension is mounting because the people of Israel are afraid. Verse 11, verse 24, everybody's afraid. Verse 25, 26, and 27, the story, the story actually hinges. It is the turning point. The men of Israel say, presumably they're saying it out loud in David's hearing, have you seen this man? Have you seen this man who has come up? He's come to defy Israel. We know the drill happens morning and evening. But the king will enrich the man who kills him. He'll enrich him with great riches, will give him his daughter, make his father's house free in Israel, almost like a, a tax-free situation for the one, who, the one who delivers. And David said to the men who stood by him, like, maybe he hears it partially, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And the one who takes away, listen to David's words. Again, every word of dialogue matters. He says, the one who takes away the reproach from Israel for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. What's so interesting about these verses is that this is the first time in all of Scripture that we hear David speak. And what is David's first words? He, he sets such a contrast because in verse 25, they're all saying, have you seen this man? Have you seen this man? And what David says is this Philistine, this one who is not part of God's covenant people, is defying, is defying the armies of the living God. Do we have a God that's alive or not? For the first time in all of 1 Samuel 17, we actually have God coming to light in this chapter. And it comes through David's mouth. First time God's mentioned. David is processing, processing all of this so much differently than anyone else who's mentioned. Saul isn't thinking about God. He's afraid. All of Israel's hearts are melting. But David's language tells us that God's on the scene. This isn't just about some petty squabble in the Middle East. There is a God of eternity, the God of all nations, and he's present, and David's the one that calls our attention to it. It says in verse 28, Eliab didn't like that. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption. I know the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see, you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? You see some of the human dynamics at play? I do. Maybe it's because I'm the youngest of seven. 
Maybe it's because I have four older sisters and two older brothers. When we slow down and process the details, this story seems very human. This sibling rivalry, the older brother going, really, David? You're, you're, you're going to solve all this? Really? Aren't you taking care of the sheep? Well, there's one or two of them back home. Go take care of the sheep. That's what dad thinks you're good, you're good for. That's what I think you're good for. This is man's work out here. Why don't you just go back and take care of the sheep? I know why you're here, David. If you can't understand all the human dynamics and family dynamics in this, you may not have had siblings. So, again, the tension is mounting here. It says in verse 30, David has no time for it. He turns away from him toward another. He spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. But when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for him. So now we have, picture it, Saul and David. So Saul had been anointed as king. David had been anointed as the next king. And now they're together. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And here's the track record. When, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Again, pay attention to the word deliver because you see defiance and deliverance a lot in this chapter. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has, here's the issue, Saul. He has defied the armies of the living God. And David's not done talking again. Notice the dialogue. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, and and now Saul's going to use some sort of blessing, but it it almost sounds to me like he's like, Good luck, good luck. You know, go and, and the Lord be with you. And Saul, ah, one more idea. Saul clothed David with his armor. David, you're going out to fight. Here's some armor. Here's actually my armor. Here's a helmet of bronze for your head, a coat of mail to protect your chest, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and the scene's almost comical. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I've not tested them, so David put them off. It's what a picture, what a picture we have here. We have Saul who's head and shoulders above everybody else. So we have Goliath head and shoulders with all his armor. And then we have Saul, who's head and shoulders above everybody else. And he has armor, but he doesn't want to use his armor. So maybe David could rent his armor here and go out and invite the battle that Saul himself should be fighting. I think that's the picture we're meant to get. David has a helmet, a breastplate, a sword, Saul's not willing to fight. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. 
This is what Jen read a moment ago. His sling was in his hand. He approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Again, the shame and honor. For he was but a youth, yet ready, handsome in appearance. This strikes me because 1 Samuel 16 talked a lot about man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Philistine said to David, am I a dog? You're coming at me with sticks? Philistine cursed David by his gods and said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you and we would expect with a sling and some rocks. That's not what he says. I come to you in the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied in this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. And here's, here's the motivation. Here's the intention. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, everybody here may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. So now they meet and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone, struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, and they fled. I pieced it together, and I, I, I've heard this story dozens of times, if not hundreds. And yet, as it comes together, it means more to me maybe than it ever has. What we don't have is a a few bullet points that we can kind of take away today. But I do want to tell you two things that stick deeply with me in this story. This story, first of all, leaves me impressed with David. And I need to read this. I need to read of David's faith and his courage and his devotion. I need to read of David's strong confidence in God. I need to read of his sensitivity to God's people being humiliated and God's name being trashed. And I don't know that my heart is always like wired to, to process all that. And I, this story helps me appreciate like David cared. David reveres the Lord. David had seen God's work in the past and he believes that God is good and God is great and God will deliver David hears Goliath's rhetoric and he processes Israel's fear. And he still seems to be the only one in the whole story that says, we have a living God here. We don't have to be afraid. And so he pulls multiple titles to describe this God who he trusts and he has confidence. He says, he's the Lord of armies. He's the living God. He is is the Lord, the covenant name Yahweh, the one who has promised to be faithful to his people. David's confidence in the deliverance of God leaves me impressed. 
David's courage leaves me impressed. It's such a contrast. David's like Godward focus seems to be such a contrast even in our age. So in our age, we could envision this story of, you know, you come to me, you can imagine a, a person in 2019 saying, you come to me with a, a sword, a spear, and javelin, but I, I come at you with lots of confidence in myself. I believe in myself. And, and that would just like flow off of our tongue because of what we've been trained to think. Oh, sure, we invoke God's name somewhere in it. You know, I want to thank God, but, you know, I just always believed in myself, and I knew I'd always prove the doubters and haters wrong, and so that's how I, I did. I mean, this is the way we would talk. It's not. It's not what David does. David invokes God's name, not just like a remedy, a dilemma. He doesn't just have a challenging situation, a boss or coworker that's kind of like a Goliath to him, and gets God and kind of a few stones and it's kind of represents some good luck and we'll just go after it. What you get in David is this confidence in the Lord. He is not just a heroic underdog like Hickory High School or Buster Douglas. There's something else going on. It's more than just knocking off the heavy favorite. Hear David's words and hear David's heart and be convicted and impressed with his confidence in the Lord. And I, frankly, I need that to grow my faith. But as impressed as I am with David in the story, as I've read it again and again, this story, what it really does to me, it causes me even to look past David and causes my heart to worship God. It causes my heart to worship God. As impressed as I am with David, we see in the story that God who is never outmatched, the God who never finds himself at a disadvantage. I might be impressed with David, but in this story I see a God who is a refuge for his people. I see in this story the God who provides a deliverer just the right time rescuing God's people from everything terrible they might face that would lead to ultimate destruction. We find in the story the God who provides the path for us to be free from the oppressive, ruling pull of this world. We find in the story the God who is passionate that the world would know him as savior of his people. This really isn't about me thinking through a few giants in my life. This is really about me thinking of the God who is the living God, the God who didn't just kind of exist in some fairy tales and myths and legends 3,000 years ago, but the God who is just as alive and real and powerful working today. David's view of God is that he is the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, worth worshiping, worth identifying with. And this is what I think. So David worshiped God, but I think my goodness, since Jesus has come, I have more understanding about God than David did, than David ever could. It's not that I have a picture of a different God, but I do have a bigger picture of who God is and what he's like. I have more reasons to worship him. What do I mean by that? I, I, I know dimensions of the love of God that David had not seen yet because it had not happened yet. I know that God loved this world in such a way that he demonstrated his love by his son coming to the cross. David knew God's love, but we know it in a deeper, richer, fuller way. 
He cares about those who are neglected, harassed, beaten down. He goes to the cross in love, willingly giving his life to redeem rebels. And that should draw our hearts to worship. Because he is amazing, more than amazing. And while David knew that, with some picture, we know it with a complete picture. Our view of the mission of God is clearer. So David knew God rescues people. But now we know the dimensions of that, that God is in Christ on this restoring all of creation. On our own, we might cower just in fear, much like Saul. But wait a minute, wait a minute. We know God has come to save this world. Call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. This leads us into worship. This leads us to want to give that appeal again and again and again to say, do you know this God? Do you know him in a personal way? Not just can you invoke his name in a prayer occasionally, but do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know God in the person of Jesus Christ who rescues and delivers? We know the power of God. We know We know that even death, hell, Satan, the grave, none of those are a match for our God because in Jesus Christ, we have victory over all of that. We know the presence of God in a a clearer way. He is with us. He is with us forever. His Holy Spirit is sealing us until the day of our redemption. Jesus has promised us, I am with you wherever you go. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. And then the day will come when the faith becomes sight, much like Eddie read about earlier in our service. The invisible becomes visible. And we will see our Lord Jesus just as he is. For now we walk by faith, but we actually have seen more. We know more about the presence of God than even David did. Should this not, I mean, church, should this not cause us to do away with all all of our small selfish ambitions and trade all of that plan in for God's great glory worldwide? Should that not cause our hearts to go because we have even a a more complete picture than David. Should we not say, your will be done? I am following you. You name it and I'll follow. Things change when we have this picture of God. The question changes instead of asking, how will God help me face my giants? I ask it a little differently. I say, what role would God have me play and bringing the message and reality of his love and salvation to this world. What role am I going to play in that? Here am I, Lord. What role am I going to play in that? And I don't know how you will answer that question. The situations are too complex. Our, our, our lives are, are too complex. And, and I couldn't anticipate every scenario. But, but are you willing to say, I I will play whatever role God envisions because he is great and he is glorious and he's gracious and I'll give my life for him. This story leaves me very impressed with David. This story takes me to my knees saying, here I am to worship Lord. Here I am to say that you are my God. Can I just get a bow your head? Oh, Father, I thank you for time to reflect on this very familiar story and see it in new and fresh ways. I don't find anywhere in the story myself as the hero. Forgive me, Lord, where I would be just like the people of Israel, running and cowering in fear. Father, I thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who today we confess is the living God. Help our minds to see you for who you are, because when we see you for who you are, what can we do but worship? What can we do but obey? What can we do but trust? So Lord, do this deep work in our lives so that all the earth would know that you are a God who saves those who believe in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.